Would you stand with me, please? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, or so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house, along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you, when you shall take away, you sh when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. We're considering the words of Amos the prophet during the fall. Amos was a prophet living in the 8th century BC. He was nothing but a shepherd from a small village named Tekoa outside Jerusalem. And God chose him as his messenger to go up against Israel and to, uh, to prosecute them in relation to how they had walked away from God's law. Now you may have noticed in our reading this morning in chapter 3 verse 14, it references that the altars at Bethel will fall. In order to understand the altars of Bethel falling and their significance, we have to understand a little bit of the backstory, the history of Israel that has led up to this moment. Now, it's very common to be confused about Israel's history, particularly at the point that Israel essentially breaks into two nations. Now, when we think of Israel, we usually think of the 12 tribes of Judah. And if you start there, you're starting in a good place. The golden age of Israel historically, is under the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon. After Solomon steps off the throne, his son, Rehoboam, takes the throne, but there's great distrust within Israel. And ten tribes in the north feel like they've not gotten a fair shake, that this is all about David and his family and Judah and the Benjaminites, and we're not interested in playing anymore. And to make a, a somewhat drawn-out story very short, the ten tribes in the north break off, they, uh, they dwell in the land of Samaria, and they say, we are, we're good, 
We don't want any more to do with you. And from that point forward, they are known as Israel. Now, they will actually disappear into history after the Assyrians conquer them. It's not really known exactly what happens to them, but that's getting a bit ahead of our story. Right? The two tribes in the south, they become known effectively as Judah. Right? Um, and that is where Jerusalem is still located. And that is, um, well, all we need to know right now is that the kingdom divided and the north went with Jeroboam. But Jeroboam, when he started this northern kingdom of the ten tribes, had a big problem. Uh, he had money and wealth and power and numbers, but he did not have what cemented the people together and gave them identity. And that was the temple. The one temple of the one God was still located in Jerusalem. And Jeroboam knew, in fact, in effect, he says this in 1 Kings 12, if you ever want to read the story. He says, I know if my people keep going back to worship, eventually they're going to return to the south, return to Rehoboam and his leadership, and I'll be in big trouble. And Rehoboam, he says, will kill me. So he thinks on the matter. He takes counsel. What does he do? He says, well, we need our own temples. He builds two temples, one at Dan and one at Bethel. In each temple, he places a golden calf, and he says, behold, Israel, the God who led you up out of uh, Egypt. Now, these are still temples, at least uh, purportedly to Yahweh. Right? Uh, you, don't be thrown off entirely by the golden calf. That would have been what the God rode upon or was seated upon. But what Jeroboam has done is said, I, to retain my power, to go the direction that I want to go, I need to create a place of worship that runs by our rules. And hence the two temples are created. The temple at Bethel will become the primary place for worship for the Israelites in Samaria. Now, this is the temple that we're talking about today in our passage. But we've, we're now, when we're in Amos, we're 170 years roughly beyond uh, Jeroboam the first building these temples. And so right at the outset, you had, there's this notion of generational sin that Jeroboam began to weave and fabricate stories and lies to set up artificial worship, to move away from the word of God and say, this is what will inform our people. And when you play that out over and over again, family after family, generation after generation, 170 years later, you've got a situation that's pre pretty bleak. A people who guys say, yes, we worship Yahweh. Yes, he's our God, but have very little uh, in common with God's actual desires for his people. Uh, there's... Um, the way, just by Jeroboam engaging these practices and the way that it's influenced the people over this period of time uh, leads us to this passage in Amos 3 and 4 of a people who are completely living in a cobweb of lies. And that's what we're focusing on this morning is, is God sends Amos to reveal the lies to Israel to say, this is the reality of your situation. These are your misconceptions. And they can be our misconceptions too, frankly. And so we're going to look at the lies, look at the misconceptions, and see how they relate to us as well. And the first lie that Amos takes up is the lie of self-righteousness. The second lie is the lie of religion. And the third lie is the lie of luxury. And we'll take them in that order. Self-righteousness, religion, and luxury. So what do we mean by the lie of self-righteousness? The lie of self-righteousness is something that's pretty simple. It's when we persuade ourselves that we're righteous apart from the righteousness that God defines in his word. 
Right? So uh, it would be very, to take a very easy example, I might go tomorrow and serve at a, ha- uh, ha- uh, sorry, I mixed two nonprofit groups together in my head at the same time. So I either went to Habitat for Humanity or to Helping Hands, take your pick and serve there tomorrow and do some work. Then I say, oh, I am so righteous for my deeds. But I don't really tell you that I'm actually trying, there's a business person there and I'm trying to connect with that person and I'm hoping that we can work out a bit of a deal and I know he'll be impressed if I'm at one of these places and we meet each other on that turf. It'll, it'll make our business deal more likely. Right? So I've, I'm pretending at a certain righteousness. I might even be complimenting myself on a certain righteousness. But when I really start to look at the motives of my heart, what's driving me, there may not be any righteousness there. This is the notion of, of self-righteousness that is uh, absolutely deceptive. And this is what God brings to Israel's attention in a very forceful way. Begin at verse 9. It says, Ashdod and Egypt have been assembled on the mountains of Samaria. Remember, that's where Israel is. To observe what the passage is saying, God is saying, I'm calling Ashdod and Egypt to serve as my witnesses in my case against you. Now that's crazy. And it's crazy because Egypt and Ashdod are pagan nations, famous for their violence, having nothing in common with God. And God says, Israel, you're so far gone, I'm going to invite these people to act as judge over you. It's an incredible insult and it's an incredible moment of revelation to say, Israel, the very people that you would condemn, they're going to stand in condemnation of you because you actually have moved farther away from me than people who never even knew me because you were closer to begin with. It gets worse from there. Uh, From verse 9, you go into verse 10. They do not even know how to do right. The people have moved so far from God's word that they have no moral compass. Not only do they not know how to do right, but they are committed to doing wickedness. They store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. And the picture that Amos is giving us of these Israel and its wealth, remember it's a very wealthy period for Israel, is that they're willing to run over anybody to get what they want. Other people's needs or the poor or the oppressed, these people don't matter as long as I'm enjoying what comes with my wealth and success. And so we see that in Israel, there's really no righteousness, nothing that characterizes them as God's people. And yet, Israel would have said at this time, and indeed does, and will be called out on it in the book of Amos, we go to worship Yahweh. We go to the temple regularly, and God says, you don't know me. We don't have a relationship. It points out to us how easy it is to be self-deceived in our own righteousness. You may not know the name uh, Kosti Hinn, uh, but Kosti Hinn is the nephew of a man you may know whose name is Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn is a very famous uh, preacher of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is if you obey and, and do right before God, you will be blessed materially, you'll get rich, and if you sin, then you will be punished and prosperity will be taken for you. Hin runs a multi, multi, multi-million dollar uh, ministry around the world, going to some of the poorest places of the world, praying on their weakness, offering miracles uh, for money to be spent. He's been long under the investigation of the IRS, has houses around the world, uh, lives in absolute luxury, and uh, it's very much a family enterprise. Kosti is his nephew, 
And apparently all of the nephews and nieces serve in the ministry at some point in time as sort of a thank you for all of the wealth all the family receives. So Costi's father wasn't that wealthy, uh, didn't do anything, was actually lived a pretty um, average life economically, but they were showered with uh, exotic homes, Mercedes-Benz, uh, all sorts of high-ticket items. And this is, so this is Costi describing what he grew up in. Almost 15 years ago on a shoreline outside of Athens, Greece, I stood confident in my relationship with the Lord and my ministry trajectory. I was traveling the world on a private Gulfstream jet doing gospel ministry and enjoying every luxury money could buy. After a comfortable flight and my favorite meal, lasagna, made by our personal chef, we prepared for a ministry trip by resting at the Grand Resort Laganisi. Boasting my very own ocean view villa complete with private pool and over 2,000 square feet of living space, I perched on the rocks above the water's edge and rejoiced in the living I was living, in the life I was living. After all, I was serving Jesus Christ and living the abundant life he promised. What a remarkable statement. An individual who's preying on the oppressed and the poor and absolutely persuaded that he is wholly involved in gospel ministry. Right? Proclaiming the name of Jesus even as he lives uh, this wildly luxuriant lifestyle that doesn't look anything like Jesus' lifestyle. We see here simply an echo of the road of Jeroboam. Jeroboam decides to fabricate a religion around temples that serves his purposes to retain wealth and power. And Benny Hinn creates a religion right, around which he can make sure that he retains wealth and power in the practice of that religion. And we see in Costi, you know, he will, Costi will get out of it eventually. We'll see that in a little bit. But Costi recognizes that he was utterly persuaded of his own righteousness in the midst of participating. And so we have to ask the question, as we look at Israel or, or consider Costi, right, is, your, is your righteousness false? Is your righteousness something that is mostly image and something mostly on the outside that's only on display for others? Or is it something that really characterizes your heart? There are several ways to begin to ask this question. You can say, you know, um, do you really pursue God for who he is? Or you can say, are you someone who is far more considered, co concerned with the splinter in your brother's eye than with the log in your own? Right? These are questions that help us to evaluate our hearts and to help us realize, oh, maybe if I am more concerned with the splinter in my brother's eye, and not really paying attention to what's in my eye, then yeah, I've got a lot of false self-righteousness going on that needs to be dealt with and needs to be exposed. But this is just the first way that Israel has lived under a lie that God is exposing. The second way is the lie of religion itself. Now, religion I'm using in a very broad term, globally. And if we were, really, if you were to just say, how would you define religion if you looked at most of the religions in the world, you'd have to come down saying something like, well, religion is when people approach God in worship or adoration and service to get something back. That would be a fair definition in most religions of the world, but it wouldn't be of Christianity, and that's what makes Christianity unique. Christianity is the story of God entering into the world and sacrificing himself so that we might come to him, so that we might be invited back into relationship with him. But when we live by religion, it becomes an economy. 
It becomes a system in which, oh, God is God and I'm created. I have certain expectations. And if I meet those expectations, then I get certain things in return. That's the story of religion, which is a lie if, it's, if you try to apply it to the Christian story. So, because Israel has been living that way in verse 11, what does Amos say? An enemy will come. Judgment is coming. And in verse 12, boy, talk about a stark picture. What is this business about a shepherd rescuing from the mouth of the lion an ear or a couple of legs? Well, in the ancient world, if you were a shepherd, you were entrusted with the flocks of someone who was richer than you were. You'd be out tending the flocks, and sooner or later, a wolf or a bear or whatever other predatory animal would come in uh, the Middle East and would get a sheep. Well, as a shepherd, it was your job to get a piece of that sheep to bring back to demonstrate that you had not stolen the sheep. Say, listen, you know, boss, I'm really sorry. Little Susie really did get eaten by a lion. Here's Susie's ear as a demonstration. I didn't steal the sheep. Susie's gone. What is God saying then by drawing on this very common metaphor in the ancient world? Uh, Israel, there's, there's not going to be much of you left. That is how angry I am. And in this passage, God's swearing by his character. He's swearing by his holiness. And he says, I must come against you. You have, uh, you have made, in a sense, the message is you've made my name a stench. You've moved so far from me. And to continue to abuse the covenant relationship we have established, you must be punished. Now, it's a bit harsh, but we'll come back to that in a minute. So uh, as we move through this considering uh, the lie of religion, in verses 14 and 15, Amos really pulls off kind of this brilliant move that, that reveals more to us than we might read in the English. In verse 14, Amos has said that the altars of Bethel will fall. Now, Bethel is a Hebrew word. It just means house of God. So what he's saying in verse 14 is that the house of God will fall. But then in verse 15, what is the result of the house of God falling? All houses will fall. The summer houses, the winter houses, the ivory houses. These are all words that describe rich people's houses. And if in the ancient world, if you're rich, you'd build not only a luxurious house, but you'd build essentially a fortress, right? There's no common civil defense. There's no uh, a th- police authority that you can call on your behalf. You're basically responsible for your own defense. And so they build these uh, fortresses or strongholds that they think will protect them. But what Amos is saying, if the house of God falls, in other words, if God's presence is removed from the community, then all houses will fall. And that is a, that is a valuable principle for us. It's a valuable principle for us as a church. If we stop honoring and seeking God's presence in the midst of our ministry, then this house will fall. And it's a valuable lesson for your house. If you stop seeking and honoring the presence of God in the midst of your house, your house will fall as well. If God has left the house, then all houses crumble. And also in verse 14, this other uh, cool bit that Amos is doing, he goes out of his way to say that the horns of the altar shall be cut off. Now why would he make such a particular point about the destruction of one thing? In the temple, the horns of the altar play a very important purpose. In fact, they play two purposes. Most importantly, it's the place where you sprinkle the blood. In other words, it's the place where atonement is made. And if there are no horns on the altar, no blood can be sprinkled, 
and therefore no atonement can be made. The other thing the horns were for were for appeal for mercy. If you got yourself into a very sticky situation in the ancient world, and you actually, there are a couple of stories in the Old Testament about this, and you think that probably somebody's coming for your life, one recourse that you had, right, if you're at your 11th hour and 59th minute, is to run in the temple and grab hold of the uh, horns on the altar. It was an appeal for mercy, and your case might be heard, and someone in authority, a priest or a king, might decide to grant you mercy and reprieve from whatever was about to befall you. And so when Amos says the horns from the altar are going to be cut off, he's saying there will be no more atonement for sin. All of your sin is on you. And there will be no appeal for mercy. There's not going to be an opportunity for you to actually uh, repent after a certain point when this enemy has come upon Israel. And gosh, at least from one, it's a little bit scary to see Israel so confident in their wealth and in their basic mundane practice of their religion and yet to realize the religion is absolutely false and God is about to befall on them in a way that they cannot possibly comprehend. The uh, Kosti goes on to talk about uh, the religion that his family created. Now notice the parallel that I'm trying to bring up is Jeroboam to create the religion of Israel had to move away from God's word so does Benny Hinn. This is how Costi describes it. Growing up in the Hinn family empire was like belonging to some hybrid of the royal family and the mafia. Our lifestyle was lavish, our loyalty was enforced, and our version of the gospel was big business. Though Jesus Christ was still a part of our gospel, he was more of a magic genie than the king of kings. But doubts began to surface for Costi. He goes on, what about unsuccessful healing attempts? I learned that it was the sick person's fault for doubting God. Why would we speak in tongues without interpretation? Don't quench the spirit, I was told. He can do what he wants. Why did many of our prophecies contradict the Bible? Don't put God in a box. Despite the questions, I trusted my family because we were so successful. Tens of thousands of people followed us. Millions packed stadiums annually to hear my uncle. We healed the sick, performed miracles, rubbed elbows with celebrities, and got incredibly wealthy. God must be on our side. What a great picture of how a, a, not only a righteousness but an entire religion moving away from the word of God, right? Do you notice all the ways they had to nuance the basic questions driven by scripture? Right? You get to a place where you feel very comfortable in the practice of your religion, but why? I trusted my family because we were so successful. In the midst of the wealth that they enjoyed, they perceived it as blessing and in perceiving it as blessing, they thought we must be in God's favor. How dangerous it is for any of us to evaluate our standing with God based on uh, external means. Whether we be blessed or whether we be suffering, those, that isn't the measure by which to evaluate anything. We must run to the word to know up from down and right from left. Are you living in some lie of religion? Now, I realize none of you grew up jet-setting around the world in the midst of a family that is engaged in the prosperity gospel. That's not your story. But we can ask hard questions of our own hearts and ask questions that reveal, well, are we really living out of religion or are we living in a real relationship with God? Simple questions like, when do you talk to God? Do you have the tendency to go to God regularly? in worship and adoration because of who he is or do you tend to talk to God just when you need something? 
or when you're worried about a kid or worried about a spouse or need something to change. If the latter's the case, then let's be frank, how far are you from the prosperity gospel? You're not where Benny Hinn is, but you're not embodying a real faith that approaches God for who he is and loves him because he's God. There's still a bit of lie there. You know, even for me, I mean, in terms of a ridiculously practical and timely example, as I, I, you know, part of me doesn't love to go to the minor prophets. Lots of judgment, lots of violence, and I think, man. And particularly, you know, the, uh, the shepherd who pulls out an ear or a couple of legs. I think, really, that's a pretty gruesome picture, right? How, this is a loving father in some capacity saying this is what has to happen to his children, right? But even as I go to that, I'm confronted, well, in what ways would I love to make God into something that I really like? And it's only by going to his word and saying, oh, in some capacity, God must be much more serious about his holiness than I am, and he must be much more serious about my sin than I am for this to be true, which causes me then to have to reflect on my life. So if I read about this terrible thing that happens to the sheep that is a metaphor for what's going to happen to Israel, I say, I don't, I don't really love that. I'm not drawn to it. But I say, but this is God revealing him, uh, to us who he is. Then I have to rethink the predispositions that I have that make me not love passages like that. Right? That's why we must run to the word to have ourselves awoken and to hear God's revelation. All right, last one. Lie of luxury, uh, kind of fun. Very surprising, very unusual. Uh, hear this word, uh, you cows of Bashan. Uh, <laughs> Zach mentioned last week uh, around the silent auction, we had all these scripture passages and calligraphy and beautiful artwork. It says, why does nobody do uh, the cows of Bashan in calligraphy and beautiful artwork? I think that's a great idea, and I hope someone does it, and I will buy it, Maybe. Probably not. All right, so the cows of Bashan are um, the rich women of Israel. This is why this is unique, a little bit different. You don't very often see a prophet taking direct, uh, a direct line of sight to women. And it's a bit surprising because surely we would say, who's responsible for Israel's situation? Well, Jeroboam and all the kings who have followed him and the priests who have led the false worship in the temple. The men are responsible and should be held accountable, but Amos goes out of his way to address uh, the women that are living in Israel and uh, living out of their luxury. Now, just a exegetical note, right? Cows is not, it's, it's not a comment on size, as we might use, or you, might, you wouldn't use it that way, but you might hear that word used in reference to women today. The cows of Bashan were the best cows, right? They grazed in the most fertile land. Uh, they, they lived a life of luxury for cows. And what Amos is saying, you rich women of Israel, you've lived a life of utter luxury. Right? Your, your life is like the most perfect pasture land. Everything is there ready for you every day. But he goes on to say, what's true of you, if you look down in verse 1, it says, what's true of them is they oppress the poor, they crush the needy, and they say to their husbands, bring that we may drink. In other words, we get more of, of what we've seen from Israel at large, but we see a, a group of women 
who are not following Yahweh at all, but instead are committed to, it doesn't matter what happens to someone else as long as I enjoy my wealth, and my husband basically exists to provide for my greed and desires. And as a result, they consume everyone they come into contact with. And it's a reminder uh, that we're all responsible for our holiness at the end of the day. It would be easy for us or for the women of Israel to dismiss their responsibility based on all the men in authority who should be acting more responsible. But that, God doesn't give them that out. He says, you are responsible, O cows of Bashan, to give an account for the ways in which you act. And so I think a couple things should be said here. One is to young women. As you look forward to the rest of your lives, perhaps you aspire to marry a boy, and that is all well and good. But if you learn now that you are responsible for your own holiness and not look to a boy to complete your holiness, you will be much better off. There is no contender for marriage who will complete you, who will rescue you, who will make your life what you might desire it to be except for the one true man, Jesus Christ. And so as you approach any notion of marriage at any point in your life, make sure that your holiness is born out of your relationship with him prior to even considering uh, marrying a man. And to married women, I think based on what God is saying to the women of Israel, we might readily acknowledge your husband may be a tool and he may need a blanket party behind the woodshed. But if that gives you an excuse to then go indulge sin, right? In your frustration, you say, I'm not responsible for my holiness because this man is not responsible for leading this house in holiness. Then you have excused yourself from your responsibility and you have more in common with the cows of Bashan than you might like to admit. You know, in a stunning fashion, uh, in the story of Costihin, who's immersed in these lies of religion and lies of self-righteousness, what wakes him up is actually the girl he wants to marry. He meets a girl and falls in love and thinks, this is it. Her name is Christine, uh, but there's a big problem, particularly in this crazy Pentecostal, uh, uh, in the world of prosperity gospel, which is uh, you need to speak in tongues. So uh, Christine hasn't spoken in tongues, and, and Kosti says, well, this is a big problem. We will just go to a crusade, and then you'll be taken care of, and you'll speak in tongues. Well, they go to the crusade, and nothing happens. Now it's getting a little bit scary. So they go to a special crusade that has special coaching for speaking in tongues, and still nothing really results. Kosti says the most she could do was a couple mumbled syllables, and it was not very impressive to the family. And so uh, Kasi's in love with her, but one day uh, Christine brings, uh, just opens the Bible and says, you know, there's this passage uh, in 1 Corinthians that says, you know, not all have the gift of healing, not all have the gift of tongues. Why do you expect, why do you assume that this is required of every person if Paul in Corinth obviously doesn't think that it's required of every person? And Kasi essentially says the world stopped turning. He had been shown scripture and had no answer, and it was the crack of light that shone through this web of deceptions and eventually brought everything crumbling down. And eventually, he, so he would be alienated from his family and actually go into ministry in an evangelical church on the West Coast where he currently serves. 
And he's got a great testimony. He wrote it up in Christianity Today this month if you want to read it. But what, what changed Kasi, what woke him up, what helped him to see through all these lies and all these deceptions, it was A, going to the word of God, right? After his wife confronted him, he started to evaluate every claim of his uncle according to the Bible. And two, he sought godly wisdom. He went to his pastor and said, how do you read this? How do you understand this? Am I thinking about this correctly? And over time, right, all the lies came crumbling down and he was made new. We see Kosti being redeemed from the lies in which he was enmeshed. And we see Israel headed to destruction for the lies in which they were enmeshed. Both stories cause us to ask this question. How close are you to God? What is really the nature of your relationship? Do you pursue a righteousness that is Christ and not your own? Do you pursue God for who he is and worship him because he is worthy and not necessarily because of what he'll give to you? Are you more concerned with the luxury, the rights and privileges you think you have earned and the things that you want to buy and the life that you want to live than you are living a life of holiness? These are pictures that show us if the answer is that we prefer any of those things, then we are very far from God indeed. Amos' challenge, his invitation is to come and to repent of those things and to be intimate with God and to remember that what makes our faith unique is what we receive at this table. That we do not practice a religion where you must bring something to God in order to be blessed. He has come to bless you and you would be a fool not to receive it this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are angry over sin, which is ultimately for the good of humanity. No parent here would allow their child to do whatever that child desired. And so you, after countless times of calling them back to repentance, would punish them. And it is a warning to us. Would you help us to hear that warning this morning and to go from here today And this week to ask, how? How have we bought into lies of our own righteousness? How have we bought into lies of religion? How have we bought into lies of luxury? To repent of those lies and draw near to you. We ask for your grace. We ask that you would nourish us at this table this morning and equip us for the very calling by which you have called us. Amen.